You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sweden in Focus. We are recording this on Friday the 14th of October, just a few hours after the moderate party leader Ulf Kristersson reported to the parliamentary speaker Andreas Norlén that he is ready to form a government, assuming he survives a vote in the Riksdag that will make him Sweden's next prime minister. Given that this is such a huge news story, we're going to dedicate the entire podcast today to talking about what we know so far about the incoming government and how it is likely to affect listeners' lives in Sweden over the next four years. I'm Paul Omani and with me today are James Savage in Stockholm and Becky Waterton and Richard Orange in Malmö. Hello, everybody. Hello. Hello. We're just going to get straight into it because there's a lot to discuss and we'll get to the agreement soon. But to start with, Becky, can you just guide us briefly through what happened today and the timeline for the coming days and weeks? So essentially today, the the winning block in the election in September had a joint press conference to pronounce what they've called the TIDA agreement, which is the name of this castle that they, they were in last weekend to, where they were supposedly writing up this agreement. They've basically said how they're going to govern Sweden, what their what their plans are for the next four years. And that consists of the moderate party leader, Ulf Kristersson, who will lead a three-party coalition. So that will be the moderates, the liberals and the Christian Democrats with the support of the Sweden Democrats. So the Sweden Democrats will not be in government. And although the Sweden Democrats aren't going to be in government, they have got a lot of policy, um, but we'll go into that in a bit more detail later. So the next steps are that Parliament will have a hold a vote on Monday to confirm Ulf Kristersson as Prime Minister. Um, if he is successful, he will have a Hüfters Konselje, which is where he goes to meet the King with his new government ministers. And that's where his government will formally kind of become the new government of Sweden. So that's where, where the changing of power happens. And then the next kind of big milestone for the new Kristersson government would be the 15th of November, where they would propose their first budget. So that would be proposed to Parliament and it will be voted on there. Brilliant. Thanks, Becky. It's interesting that four parties held a press conference, but only three of them are going to be in government. Why is that, James? Well, let's start from what we knew from the beginning was that there was there were two parties that were always going to be in this government. That's the moderates and the Christian Democrats. Those parties are very close to each other. They're kind of in the middle of this uh, of this four-party block. But the question was always about the other two parties. Now, both 
um, the moderates and the Christian Democrats, but also the liberals have said that having Sweden Democrats in government, having them provide ministers was was not a runner for them. They sort of all said that they would veto that um, as a possibility, even though Sweden Democrats themselves said they would really rather like to be in government. But then there's a the question about the liberals. So the liberals, they're the, the, the smallest party of this four party block, and they're the party that's most centrist, that would refer this to the left. And the question was always, if you don't have them in the government, then they could stand outside the government and cause trouble. And Christa Schon has reportedly been very keen to get, to, to get them in the government for this particular reason, that if they're in government, they have ministerial positions. If the Liberals are in government, they are just bound more tightly to Ulf Christoschon. It's, it's a much bigger step for them than to rebel against the government, vote against the government in a way that brings the government down. So the Liberals from the beginning have promised their voters a centre-right government with them in it. So it also works well with, um, with what the Liberals have promised their own voters. So in a way, it is what the Liberals wanted, but it also suits Ulf Christian really well. It's not necessarily what Jimmy Orkerson wanted, but he's had to compromise on that. Jimmy Orkerson, as you said, has had to compromise on this because he did want to bring the Sweden Democrats into government. But the first reactions to this new coalition agreement have portrayed it as a major victory for the far-right Sweden Democrats, whose policies, especially on crime, immigration and integration, take up a lot of space in the 63-page document they're calling the TIDA agreement, as Becky mentioned, and that's after a castle in Westeros where they thrashed out a lot of the details. Let's have a look now at what they've actually agreed. If I could start with you, Richard, there are pages upon pages dealing with migration and integration. What are some of the most interesting policies there? Jimmy Orkerson has been clear. He's saying that this represents nothing less than a paradigm shift in uh, Swedish migration policy. And I think we'd all have to agree with him. I mean, there was we wrote a story before on, you know, this is what the Sweden Democrats, how they want to change life for foreigners and migrants in, in, in Sweden, and pretty much everything on that list that the Sweden Democrats have proposed is in this agreement. Whether it will get through in this mandate period is another thing, but it's all there. So even the more outlandish suggestions on return migration, sending immigrants who are already here or encouraging them to go home, that's in this document. So it's further than I thought it would. It, it's, it's more far going than I would have expected. I would have expected the Liberals to say no to a whole range of these policies and even the moderates, but uh, yeah. but, but everything has got through. Like even, even yesterday, I was saying to Richard, I was worried that this article we'd written about the what rights the Sweden Democrats want to take away from foreigners. I was like, was this a bit too alarmist? Is that actually going to happen? Have we been freaking people out? And clearly it wasn't too alarmist because most of it's actually happened. I mean, for work permit holders, who I know a lot of listeners are working in Sweden in work on, on work permits, they're raising the minimum threshold for salaries to, or they want to, to the median salary in Sweden, which is 33,000 kroner. Which, so that's um, considerably uh, higher than a lot of entry-level jobs. Yeah, so it, it basically means that you will only be able to come to Sweden if you've already established in your career. You won't be able to just get your kind of entry-level job in Sweden. But it's most far-going when it comes to asylum legislation, where Jimmy Jokerson said that the, the goal was 
to bring it to the minimum allowable level under European law or on, under other international treaties like uh, you know the Geneva Convention and, and other ones like that. And it goes pretty far. So they want to, they're getting rid of permanent residency for asylum seekers. So if you've come to Sweden as an asylum seeker, you will always be at risk of going back to your home country or your country of origin. And they've said that they want to be able to reassess people's um, residency kind of in the middle of a residency permit. So if the situation changes in their country of origin, so say you got asylum in Sweden because of the war in Syria or or, or a war in Eritrea, they would then be able to, if there's a change in, in regime in Eritrea, they'll be able to send every Eritrean living in Sweden back to Eritrea in the middle of their residency perm. So that's pretty dramatic change. They, they want to restrict uh, family reunion, which is how a lot of people manage to come to Sweden on uh, family reunion, to the, the, the smallest possible circle of relatives, which is basically your partner and any children you have under 18 years of age and no one else. So no brothers, no sisters, no mothers, no parents, all of those will be ruled out. So that's quite far going again. Uh, I suppose another thing for, that will be really interesting for readers is citizenship. They want to extend the time it takes to qualify citizenship to at least eight years in the normal case. And it doesn't go into details as to whether people who are married to Swedes might get uh, a shorter period as they do today. And they also want to bring in a bond, demand that anyone applying for citizenship has to be able to support themselves. I didn't re see anything about language requirements, actually, but I'm sure it's in there. But I guess but, that might uh, be because the Social Democrats have already bought in. That's already in an Utrechtning. Mm. It's already being. That's already yeah. that's already going. Yeah, and and so, but they want to bring requirements for knowledge of Swedish culture and society. It doesn't say whether there'll be a test, but there'll be requirements for knowledge, and there'll also be a new oath of loyalty or a citizenship interview or similar obligatory ceremony, which will be the final stage. So you'd have to sort of pledge allegiance to Sweden as a country. I don't know if you have to, you, de you definitely don't have to do that right now because I became a citizen and <laughs> you just get something through the post. This knowledge of Swedish society maybe ties in with another point I saw in the document. They're going to institute a Swedish cultural canon. They'll speak to experts in different cultural areas who together will work to put together this canon and it's possible that this is what people will need to know when they take tests at a later date. Mm. This is very much in line with the Sweden Democrats' long-standing view of what the of, of what nationalism is. You know, it's very much a sort of cultural nationalism. This idea that we all that we all have one single common culture. It's not a it's not a it's not a multicultural society. It's a it's a kind of monocultural society. And you can yeah, if you're if you're an immigrant and you get here and you stay, then that's okay in some circumstances. But you have to buy in to the whole thing. The eight-year waiting time up from five years today, that's a really, really big difference. That's a significant portion of people's lives. They're just going to have to wait. And, you know, for people who have difficulties traveling in and out of the countries, we have a lot of people now who are on work permits and um, waiting for extensions on their work permits, for example, who during that period can't travel in and out of the country. If they're going to sit on work permits for at least another three years before they can get citizenship, that's another three years where they risk not being able to travel and not and, and having massive bureaucratic obstacles in their lives. There's a financial aspect as well. I've just renewed my temporary residence permit for the next two years and it costs 2,000 kroner. 
And I mean, if they also get rid of permanent residency, which is something they've spoken about, it's unclear whether that would just be for asylum seekers or for everybody. That would mean if it takes eight years to get citizenship, that's that's 16,000 kroner that you're paying just on residence permits. How much money is it going to cost to get citizenship? All of these things. Like Some people don't have that money. Some people can't just drop all that money on a, on a residence permit. It's worth saying now that regarding citizenship, they've said that the normal waiting time will be eight years. They haven't said exactly what the exceptions that that I mean, it implies if you say there's going to be a normal waiting time of eight years that there will be exceptions. Right now, there's an exception, for example, if you're married to a Swede, the normal waiting time is five years. If you're married, or I think if you are in a cohabiting relationship with a Swede, you can get it down to three years. Whether that exception will remain, possibly, but will in that period rise from three years to something else? And um, will there be any other kinds of exceptions? Would you, for instance, if you be able to take the, the test early and somehow then reduce the time that you have to wait? I mean, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see what they say because it's up, that, that, that level of detail is unclear so far. No. They said in the document they're going to launch an investigation in the spring and hope to get this passed by Parliament during the mandate period. And I think that pretty much covered the whole immigration part of the, um, so of the law. One other thing that, uh, in terms of going a lot further than I expected them to do, I think we were joking yesterday uh, or a few days about whether they would do the whole sort of Rwanda proposal that was floated by the UK and floated by Denmark, which is you, you process asylum seekers in Africa or somewhere outside of Europe. And that's in this document. There are It's, it's, it's the early stages of it, but they're talking about uh, whether it would be possible to have transit centres which could be based where it, it, it doesn't say that they would be based overseas, but it said they would have an inquiry that would look into where transit centres could be based, which, if you ask me, is an indication that they might say not here. They're talking about centres for people who are waiting to be deported. They would be held in a secure centre. What would be legal under European Human Rights Convention? You know, how far can we go on this before it becomes uh, illegal on, on under human rights law, international human rights law? I mean, this also fits with quite a lot of the stuff that they've been saying that the Sweden Democrats have been saying before like they they want to kind of take away residence based um, benefits so this is some social security benefits that yes. you you only get based on residency not based on on if you work and the Sweden Democrats have said that this will be limited to Swedish citizens and also EU citizens because they can't legally limit it just to Swedish citizens so they're really trying to get it to the lowest possible level they can, restrict it as much as they can legally. So there's a, a few areas where EU citizens are still included, but that's kind of begrudgingly just because that's what EU law says. And they are going to make things slightly more difficult even for EU citizens. So they're going to, well, they want to reintroduce the requirement to register uh, if you're an EU citizen when you come to Sweden. They're also planning on um, strengthening border controls between Sweden and other EU countries. Uh, we already have border controls on the uh, on the bridge between Denmark and Sweden. Whether they're going to toughen those even further, which would be you know quite be quite significant for people who commute between Malmo and Copenhagen, for example. But if that's what they mean by this, then this is going to be quite significant. And and then uh, in addition to that, if it's if they're going to um, they, they they seem to be implying that they wanted they that they want to introduce these at, at airports as well. Now, what that's going to mean for Sweden's relationship with the EU, um, 
is, is well, it'll be interesting to see because the EU is not keen on countries making exceptions to the the, the Schengen Agreement, which is this this open border agreement between between EU countries. There are a couple of things in the programme that might be welcomed by foreigners. For example, they say that they're going to invest more in Swedish for immigrants classes. And they're also exploring special residency rules for PhD students and researchers. Yeah, and this will solve some of these, um, some, 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 particularly the, 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 um, the visa issue for PhD students has been a really big issue over the last couple of years. The fact that they've had real great difficulty in, um, in staying on after their PhDs simply because that they, they, they don't have this, they don't have a, a, the natural thing in a PhD contract, in a PhD contract is you, you, you have sort of six months at a time, I think, isn't that right? And then that means that it's, it's hard to get to permanent residency after that. This is, I think, the only thing I can see that has the imprint of a Liberal Party because this has been a Liberal Party campaigning issue ever since PhD students had this had this problem. So I think that's the pretty much the only thing I can see in this that, that, that seems to come from them. I mean, the other thing that they're going to do that I think is quite important is to uh, make sure that people who come here have to qualify for certain kinds of social benefit, um, well, for most kinds of social benefit. So so right now, if, if you're living in Sweden legally, you have the right to some basic out-of-work benefits and in-work benefits like um, parental uh, benefits, um, child benefits, housing benefits, and so on. Automatically, what the new proposed government wants to do is to ensure that you have to be here for a while and earn your way into qualifying for these benefits. So that, that will be a, a massive change. It will obviously make it much harder for people who are coming here, particularly asylum seekers, well, to come here and, and, and live and survive. It will make Sweden a much less attractive place to come to as an asylum seeker. This would only be for non-EU citizens as well. But they this would only be for non-EU citizens because EU citizens have an automatic right. Yeah, OK, got it. We'll be back with more from the coalition agreement after this short break. This show is made possible by members of The Local. It takes time and resources to produce independent journalism, and we'd like to thank everybody who supports us through membership. If you're not yet a member, I'd urge you to check out our excellent introductory offer for Sweden in Focus listeners at thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer. Let's look now at what the coalition agreement says about crime and punishment. This is an area where the Sweden Democrats in particular were pushing for much stricter laws to clamp down on gang violence and other crime problems Sweden faces at the moment. How far does the document go and how hard is it for the Liberals to swallow? There's quite a lot in here that I think the Liberals will find uh, difficult to swallow. This is one of the things that if you see the immediate reactions from Liberals that they are, that they're most concerned about. So there is a a national uh, begging ban. There is um, um, a system of anonymous crown witnesses, as they sometimes call them, or just anonymous witnesses. These are two things that the Liberals have been uh, very much Against, they've also they're also talking about uh, reducing the uh, the age of criminal responsibility. Also, something the Liberals find very difficult to swallow. We've already seen a couple of Liberals come out and say that they um, that they're opposed to this. One of those is Liberal MP Anna Starbrink, who has said that she is planning to vote against these measures if and when they come to a vote in Parliament. Now, if she manages to get just one um, or two other 
MPs to vote with her, then that could prevent these from even from, from becoming law and therefore perhaps endanger the whole coalition agreement. So that's that, that that's kind of showing how serious this 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 could be for the for the coalition for Christa Schon and for the other parties. Also senior liberals from outside of parliament coming out and criticizing one of them uh, being the li- leader of the liberals in um in Stockholm city council Jan Jönsson who has said that yeah I mean some of the things we're worried about aren't in this but a lot of the things that are in here are very very worrying. Other measures on criminal policy in here um, that we've seen so far have been increased use of surveillance cameras uh, looking at hiring prison places overseas, stop and search zones, tougher penalties for repeat offenders and um, deportation orders for um, migrants who um, commit so-called antisocial behaviour. So it's this is, you know, we're talking about quite a draconian set of policies and very much with the stamp of the Sweden Democrats on them. That's quite extreme, isn't it? Like deporting people for associating with gang members, for example. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're talking here about about, about deporting people who haven't actually been convicted of anything at all. And that is obviously a very difficult thing to do. And it'll be interesting to see how far that proposal gets. I imagine it will come up against an awful lot of criticism from the usual instances from, you know, from civil service and, and, from, um, and, and from the legal profession. We'll see how far it gets. But these are very draconian policies. Mm. Two of these policies you mentioned, the stop and search zones and the anonymous witnesses, the Liberal Party voted on both of those and said that they were red lines that they just could not cross. So obviously, these have been very difficult negotiations for them. It's an incredibly difficult negotiation. But the the problem with having red lines, if you're willing to negotiate with other parties, and you are the smallest party, is that at some point you you have to compromise or you have to be prepared to pull out. And the Liberals weren't prepared to pull out. And so they compromised. And what did they get instead? They got um, a position in government, which might well be a poison chalice in and of itself. But that was the that that was the price they paid was it was it was in policies on crime and, and immigration. I mean, what did what did he didn't didn't uh, Joran Persson call himself the um, the liberal anchor in the coalition or something? He was the, the, the liberals are going to be the, the conscience, the liberal conscience in the coalition that would stop them, you know, following the worst instincts of the Sweden Democrats. And it doesn't seem like they're they've been a very a very powerful one so far but maybe when these MPs start voting against their party then then they will be yeah I mean even the leader of the centre party Annie Lerf has she's kind of spoken out saying this is a liberal crash landing what did the liberals even get let's look at that because Johan Persson mentioned the same phrase a few times in the press conference he said it was a mixture of sweet and salt and there's a lot of salt in there for the liberals but what are the sweeteners he touched on a few of them, like a lot of people were worried that the public service broadcasting companies would be targeted, but that hasn't been the case, has it? They've said in the agreement that public service will have will have its um, its funding sort of guaranteed over this mandate period and that its independence will be maintained over this mandate period. But then it says that over the coming mandate period, after the next election in 2026, then Vexum hierten moster ut veklas. You know, it needs to be have be reformed after two thousand. So, so they've basically put any reforms of public service on hold for this mandate period, which you know perhaps is a victory. I mean, God knows what they were proposing to do before the the Liberals got into the negotiations. And this agreement also guarantees 
abortion rights, which some people were worried would be undermined. Absolutely. going to be a constitutional guarantee for abortion rights. So, uh, you know, that's um, in a sense quite important. The question is, what will that guarantee look like? Um, Yeah. How many weeks will it be and all this stuff? And I think if you were going to pick... If, I mean, the only party that's kind of been against it recently is the Christian Democrats. But then I think even during the election period, when all this stuff with Roe versus Wade in the US happened, Ebba Bush brought out this kind of abortion contract where she was saying oh, all of the parties should sign this contract to say that we're not against abortion. So I wouldn't say it's a surprise. I wouldn't say any of the parties were kind of lobbying for a ban on abortion, but it's definitely... I think it's definitely a reaction to what's happened in the US recently. Yeah, but it's also it's also, you know, you could they can try and portray it as a as a win for the liberals, but yeah. You know, it's it's a it's a bit of, it's just a bit of a paper tiger in a way that, you know, because there's no, no one was proposing any any, any serious um, restrictions on abortion. This is almost a, it's something the the Christian Democrats would almost want to have in in the policy agreement because it it, it sort of draws a line under it draws on a line under those suspicions. Exactly. And, and uh, which is something they want to do as a yeah. party. They don't want they they want people to think that they are that they're are not threatening abortion rights there's also a provision here about sweden's judicial independence i mean there's an ongoing inquiry into this and the the program statements uh, says that this will will not be touched and will continue as planned yeah and i think that's one of the things that you see liberals citing as being liberals outside of the of, of the leadership of, of of the party citing as being sort of kind of important that They've neutralised. They think the the kind of perceived anti-democratic tendencies of the of, of of the Sweden Democrats. This idea or this this concern that the Sweden Democrats would take the country down the sort of Hungary route and abolish uh, safeguards for the you know constitutional safeguards and that kind of thing. They they feel that here that they've that they've they've at least prevented that from happening. The other the other thing that they will try and point to is that there is a whole section in this um, coalition agreement about schools, which is, you know, an important issue for them. The fact is, there's not that much in there that's more than just hot air and words. It's a lot of a lot of talk about, you know, needing to have proper requirements for knowledge-based schooling and that kind of thing. It's not exactly radical or, um, or particularly innovative or controversial. Let's look at Healthcare now, because this is an area of particular interest to the Christian Democrats who want the healthcare system to be brought back under state control instead of regional control. What's happening there? And we kind of saw that under COVID that you had different rules in different regions. And um, what they're recommending or what they're suggesting is an inquiry into making it national. So it won't, it will no longer differ between regions. It will all have the same rules in all areas of Sweden. And they also, this is actually very interesting. They want to do an inquiry into bringing in the same system of high cost protection for dental treatment as they have for other kinds of healthcare. So this would mean that the costs for dental treatment would be much lower, and it would it would kind of be put under the kind of umbrella of healthcare. Which I think I think that's a Sweden Democrat policy as well. This is where we kind of see the more the more left wing side of the Sweden Democrats coming out here. That's interesting what you say about dental care and it being a left wing policy because it's similar in that sense to AUKUS or the unemployment insurance benefits. 
that the Sweden Democrats wanted to keep at current levels and they have succeeded in getting that into the policy document. That's one of the divisions between the Sweden Democrats and the others that's been highlighted throughout the election campaign. They've been, you know, every press conference, they've been saying, oh, what are you going to do about Arkasa? And, you know, the the, the the moderates have said, we want to cut it. And the Sweden Democrats said, this is our red line. We won't let it. And for, it works very well for the Sweden Democrats because it allows them to underline the fact that they are on the left economically and remind voters that even though they're going into a right-wing coalition, they actually support working class people's interests, economic interests, in the same way the Social Democrats do. So it's a way of getting working class people to vote for a tax cutting government, basically. Yeah, I mean, again, this all kind of goes back to what you were saying, James, like they want to lower fuel tax, they want to lower taxes on a certain type of savings account for investments, ISK, they want to low tax on people with low incomes, like they want to lower taxes, but they also want to pay for everyone's dental care, and they don't want to cut any benefits. How are they going to pay for this? Are there any areas where they're saving money? Uh, So it looks like they're going to be limiting uh, international development aid from 1% of GDP to 0.85%. This is reported by Svenska Dagbladet. It's apparently, it's a kind of internal message from the Liberals, despite the fact that Ulf Christensen didn't say in the press conference how much they'd be lowering it by. But there will be a cut to development aid. It looks like it's probably going to be lower to 0.85%. So again, that's also quite a large amount. If you think about the whole GDP of Sweden, even just that little cut there is going to save a lot of money that you can then use to pay for everyone's teeth. And then obviously there's the, there's the cuts in benefits to you know asylum seekers. Yeah, you know, that, all that, of the that's social a, benefits that's a, as well. That's yeah. a major saving. They also want to add a ceiling onto benefits so that you can't earn more from your benefits than you can from getting a job. So this kind of argument that it should never pay to be on benefits. You should always want to be working if you can. And I guess they'll they'll save some money doing that as well. What's going to be really interesting to see is what this looks like when they put it into a budget and whether it has any credibility, whether the markets give it any credibility. So I'm sure, and you know, we have had, we have had some, some Swedish um, political commentators, I think uh, Torbjörn Nilsson in Svenska Dalbert was pointing this out the other day, saying that, you know, there is a risk with uh, the sorts of policy compromises that are innate in this, in, 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 this, in this government constellation that we've got now that could lead to the markets not having confidence in the government's economic plan. So it will be interesting to see how that goes. They said this morning that they've already negotiated at the budget is pretty much done. It's it's already been negotiated. There's no more negotiating to do. So it'd be interesting to see, presumably, this is all costed to some extent. What will happen if these agreements don't get put into policy? Will the Sweden Democrats... Will the Sweden Democrats argue against that? I mean, what are they going to do if Parliament doesn't approve these or the the inquiries don't approve these? Like, what what are the Sweden like? Are they going to not support the government because they don't really have another choice? Well, they 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 have they have that option because you know if Ulf Kristersson wants to sit there in his in his nice office with his nice car and is uh, flying around on the government plane then he requires the Sweden Democrats not to vote against him in a confidence motion. The Sweden Democrats could raise a confidence motion and get rid of him just like that. It would be no problem at all for them to do that because they can always rely on the left-wing parties to vote Christensen out. So they have him by the short and curlers. What other concessions have the three parties made to the Sweden Democrats outside of the agreement? They get schenstermen or officials in the Swedish government offices, just the civil service, the rehearing chancellor. And that's so that they can keep a check on how all of the policies that they've agreed are put into practice. And as, as on top of that, they're also going to have a coordination committee or council where they will meet with the other three parties and discuss how all of these different things are being put in. In a press conference after the 
in, it, when he had held a separate press conference afterwards, um, Jimmy Orkerson said that the Sweden Democrats were basically in government without being in government. They are part of the government. They control the government as much as if they were in government, even though they're not. Also here, I think what's, what is important is that, you know, ministers do have quite significant powers of their own. Not everything has to go through parliament. Everything has to be voted on. Um, ministers can, you know, they, they, they appoint people to the to government agencies. They set directors for government agencies. These things aren't subject to parliamentary votes. So that does give the moderates and the Christian Democrats and the Liberals some powers that are not immediately at least constrained by the Sweden Democrats. So mm. yes, the Sweden Democrats will have officials in government offices breathing down their necks. Um, yes, they will be keeping a very close eye on them. Yes, the Sweden Democrats can always pull out the confidence card and say, well, we don't like what you're doing. So, you know, if you one more step and we'll vote you out. But ultimately, within that, there is some room for manoeuvre for the for the moderates and the Christian Democrats and liberals. So it's not it's not just as simple as Ian York is on having those British on on a studded leash. As the party in government, they can a lot of these policies, they can control which ones actually materialise and which ones don't. So it may be that the alarmist things we're seeing here don't actually get into the statute books. Or at least not in the same extent as they are proposed. They might get watered down a little bit. But the key to the, key to the Sweden Democrats' power is making the moderates believe that they would have no compunction in voting the government out. Björn Sader, one of the gang of four who transformed the Sweden Democrats back in the day, he's been used as a sort of bargaining chip as well this week, hasn't he? Björn Sader has been appointed to head Sweden's delegation to the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe, so that's the OSCE, uh, which is an organisation started in the 70s, which was originally to kind of aid cooperation between the East Bloc and the West Bloc. This is more or less seen as as a kind of Half, half a payoff and half a way of getting rid of him because he was he was supposed to be the Sweden Democrats' proposal for deputy speaker or even speaker perhaps and and um, but in the end they settled with deputy speaker and Julia Kronlid. He's also less of a sort of uh, detoxified Sweden Democrat I think than Jimmy Yorkson and m- many in the rest of the party. He's kind of more old school, a bit more controversial, and so I think it's quite convenient for the Sweden Democrats to have him spending a lot of his time in Vienna at uh, OSCE uh, conferences. But I think another thing about the OSCE is that it was effectively this. It, fa- it was founded as this as this forum for dialogue between the the West and Russia during the or the Soviet Union during the Cold War and you know it was it was a sort of den of spies and um and, and intrigue during the Cold War so I think that you know there is a school of thought that says well that appointing at a, at, a, at, a, at a time of enormous tension as we all know between the West and Russia appointing someone from the Sweden Democrats as head of the as head of the delegation to the OSCE is is it, it raises a few eyebrows um, because the Sweden Democrats have this very checkered history of relations with the Russians. Right now, they're all in favour of joining NATO, but you've had plenty of people who've, um, plenty of Sweden Democrats in the past who have expressed sort of admiration for Putin, have voted in Russia-friendly ways, particularly in the European Parliament, and have had sort of weird kinds of sort of financial scandals connected to Russia and Russians. So the idea of appointing a pretty hardcore Sweden Democrat as head of the delegations, the OSCE, at the same time as you've as, as you've appointed um, Sweden Democrat chair people to some of the key and vice chair people, some of the key committees in Parliament, like uh, Foreign Affairs and Defence. I think some some security hawks are looking at this, going, 
what the heck are you doing here? How about energy policy? What's the new government saying there? Well, I think the, the most the most interesting thing here that they're saying is that they are going to look at building new nuclear power stations. So they're saying that they want Vattenfall, the state energy company, to immediately start planning new a nuclear power station at Ringhals in southern Sweden, where there's already been nuclear, uh, now closed down nuclear power station, and at other suitable places. They also want to change the government's energy targets from having 100% renewable energy to 100% fossil-free energy. Uh, so that basically takes away the the emphasis on you know wind and and and, and hydro um, and uh, moves it um, more in the direction of nuclear. And they also want to look into um, the uh, into restarting uh, Ringhouse One and Two, which are the existing nuclear power stations there that have been closed down. I think generally when you speak to when when you hear p- uh, people at uh, Vattenfall speaking, they they, they say that that's um, that's a non-starter. But the government at least wants to have another look at that, or so the new government will want to have another look at that. They're not ruling out more investment in wind power, for example, but they're saying that it's not going to be the basis, the sort of the the, the main foundation of Sweden's energy policy going forward. Okay, thanks. Yeah, so busy day in politics to say the least. How would you um how would you summarize it? It's been it's just been it's been an interest it's been an interesting day and we'll see how it goes on Monday, huh? Yeah. And it's definitely a parad like it is nothing else than a paradigm shift. It's a, it's a complete change in Sweden's Sweden's migration policy and it's gotten a lot much closer to Denmark and Norway. I mean, it turns out that Jimmy Orkerson, when he said this is Sweden's newest migration policy, he wasn't, before the election, he wasn't that far off, really. No, but I think it's maybe worth also pointing out that it's a, um, it, yeah, it, it, it looks like a paradigm shift. It's still going to be a very um, difficult government to manage for Christian. It's still weak. Yeah, it's almost going to be the fl- a complete flip. It's, it's 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 like a mirror image of of the government the Social Democrats have had to run for the last four years. I'm sure they have some of the same problems. I think the other thing that's I mean the, the thing that's interesting here is yes, the Sweden Democrats have so much power, but the Liberals have lots of power as well if they wish to use it because they're needed to get anything through. And congratulations are in order to you, Becky, aren't they? Because you got your residence permit in the post today. I did. I got it in the post today, which feels a little bit ironic considering all of these new. Uh, new immigration rules but I guess it's nice to know on paper that I officially have residency for the next two years and a work permit for the next two years so that's one good bit of immigration news if any of you were wondering about my immigration issues. As your boss I am very glad that you are legal it's it's reassuring. I I was legal before (laughs) let me just let me just underline (laughs) that. I'm very very reassured (laughs) about that too. That's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening. You can find a link in the show notes to an article where we go through all the main policies that were presented today. Uh, Thank you to our regular panellists, Legal Becky Waterton, Richard Orange and James Savage and to our sound engineer Rhys Edwards. I'm Paul Amani and we'll be back again with another episode of Sweden in Focus next Saturday. Until then, take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.